Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. If you had a father that was less than perfect, Two weeks ago, um, we weren't here when Jay gave a message. Um, we were on vacation, but um, when I was trying to get ready for tonight, I initially was kind of praying and saying, "God, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. I have no clue," and I wasn't getting a whole lot. So I actually asked Jay, what do you think the Lord wants us to hear tonight? So he reminded me of, well, I was able to hear the podcast. I'm grateful for the podcast. Um, Do you remember what he was saying? Our primary responsibility as humans is to Guard and nurture the place of encounter with our Creator. So what does that really mean? I've been thinking about that all week, looking at a lot of Scripture, and there's a lot more that I'm going to be able to go into tonight. One thing that I would like to start with is that just the term encounter with our creator. You know, he, he is our creator. In Psalm 139, 13 and 14, it talks about him knitting us together in our mother's wombs. He formed us. He knows us intimately. But he is so much more than our creator. I don't know how I can communicate this to you, except to say that he's the lover of our soul. 
He knows us, not only our physical bodies, but he knows our emotional makeup. He knows our psychological makeup. He knows who he made us to be and who we are. He knows everything about us, all the things that we've gone through in life, all the pain, all the wounding, all the hurt, all the joys, all the good times and the bad times. He knows it all. And he loves us. You know, I was thinking about all the things that God did for us. And I'd like to share just a few of those. It says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he died for us before we ever offered him anything. Many of us were in rebellion. One biblical example. Jesus died for the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul persecuting the church. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. See, it's always been God's intent and God's heart to bring people to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amazing. Should I turn off the projector? I guess we're going to need it later, aren't we? I'll leave it on. Praise God. <clears throat> By what Jesus did for us, it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. You see, there was conflict between us. We were separated from God. Our sin had cut us off. But Jesus reconciled us, or the Father reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And the result of that, according to Ephesians 1.6, is that we are now accepted in the Beloved. Have you ever experienced rejection in your life? God doesn't reject you. You are accepted in the beloved, in Jesus. The next verse says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we have been redeemed and we have been forgiven. Romans 5.1 says that we have been justified by faith and have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about your own life, 
I know when I think about mine, there are things that were so dark and so ungodly, so anti-Christ. They were evil. But all that is under the blood of Jesus, and I am forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, justified, accepted. It's so good that John exclaimed in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. See, that's another thing God did. He adopted us into his family. Now, why did God do all this for us? I would suggest to you that it's because he's our heavenly bridegroom. In doing all those things, he was demonstrating his love for us. He was and is attempting to win our hearts. So when Jesus says to us that the first of all the commandments is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, what he's really asking is if we will accept his offer of love and forsake all others to live in continuous fellowship with him. It's a wedding proposal. Will you be my bride? Our response to that question determines the course of our life. You know, when we experience what I've just been talking about, it's one thing to talk about it from a doctrinal perspective, you know, to go through the scriptures and list all the things that God's done, and that's all well and good. But when you know you have been forgiven, you have been cleansed, you have been justified. You have peace with God. You have that peace. It's not a concept. It's not a doctrine. It's not a teaching. It's not words on a page. It's reality. When you have that, and you know the love of God, you can't help but love him. That's why John wrote, we love him because he first loved us. So getting back to this statement that Jay gave us, I would rephrase it just a little bit. What is the place of encounter with our bridegroom God? I believe that Ephesians 3 gives us some insight into that. If you look at verse 16, 
It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. See, the Christian life begins when we confess that Jesus is Lord with our mouth and believe in our hearts. Believe in our hearts. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, doesn't specifically mention the heart, but it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. See, Jesus is inviting us into intimate fellowship with him. There's a little booklet that I read years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by Robert Boyd Munger, just a small booklet. But in that booklet, he talks about inviting Jesus into every aspect of your life, every room in your house, if you will, where you do every part of your life. So the level of intimacy that we have with Jesus is determined by how much access we give him to the rooms in our heart. So the condition of our hearts is more important than I can possibly express to you because that is the place of encounter with God. Going back to what Jay said, our primary responsibility as humans is to protect the place of encounter. How do we do that? Well, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, talks about the heart. Listen carefully. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Another translation says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Another one says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And one last translation, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So we are to keep and watch over our hearts with all diligence and vigilance because everything that we do flows from it. So the condition of our heart determines the course of our life. The condition of my heart determines my response to the heavenly bridegroom. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The implication is the impure in heart will not.
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 talks about holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a purity and a holiness that God desires for us. In Psalm 24, David said, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So it's pretty clear. We can't come into intimacy with God if our heart is impure. Have you ever had an impure heart? Boy, I know I have. So what do I do with that? You know, even as a child of God who's been redeemed and reconciled, brought into God's favor, Sometimes I just smack my forehead and say, well, how dumb can you be and do what you just did? But you see, the devil <laughs> deceives us and our flesh entices us and we decide to do something flat well knowing it's wrong. Or the Holy Spirit's kind of encouraging us and nudging us to go in a certain direction to say something to someone or pray for somebody or step out in faith and do something and we kind of, eh, I don't know if I can do that or not because our eyes are on us instead of on Him. So here's what I've done. It's the same thing David did in Psalm 51. When my heart's not pure, I cry out to God and I say, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, that's what I just read from Psalm 51, that was the confession of David. There's a lot more in Psalm 51 than I read to you, but if we confess our sins, And if my memory serves me correctly, the Greek word for confess means to come into agreement with God. To agree that what I just did or failed to do was sin. For which I need to be forgiven. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, we can be cleansed and have freedom in God. I think one of the greatest hindrances to our encounter with God 
is a feeling that we have been defiled. We have been, I mean, our hearts just is not pure. And when that happens, we have a sense of condemnation. Now, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God isn't into condemnation. He said, Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why would Jesus, think about this, why would Jesus, who went to the cross and bore our sins, in order to restore us into right relationship with him, why would he then, after going through the torture that he did, both before and on the cross, why would he then condemn us? Again, when did God love us enough to send Jesus to the cross? While we were still sinners. So if we sin after we have come to faith in Jesus and we've, been, we've received the new life, does God stop loving us? Is that as illogical as I think it is? It just doesn't make any sense. Why would God stop loving us? So, when we sense that, that condemnation, I like what um, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3. Verses 19 to 21. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If we allow guilt, shame, and condemnation to alienate us from God, we're not going to want to come into his presence. We won't feel that we can. But this says... This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. So John recognized that there were times when our hearts do condemn us. But he says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Quick aside. When Peter and the other apostles in the upper room Are saying, Peter says to Jesus, I won't deny you. Some of these other guys might, but I won't. Jesus had told them, now you are clean, all of you. But he also said to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
See, Jesus knows the real depths of our hearts that we do really want him. We might get confused and deceived and misled by our flesh or the devil or sometimes the world. That's what it says, 1 John 2, 15, about there. Do not love the world or anything in the world, the love of the Father. Um, <clears throat> the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the things that deceive us and mislead us into walking away from God, basically. But if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And that is where God wants us to be. To be able to crawl up into his lap and let him love us. I don't know about you, but I, there have been times in my life when I've had so much shame, so much condemnation, I wouldn't let God get close. Now that's kind of stupid if you think about it. What do I have to do to get myself into a condition that God's going to accept me? If you come up with anything valid, let me know. I don't think there is anything. What can you do? Why do we need a Savior to begin with? I'd like to read another passage to you that just blows my mind. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. See, Jesus did for us what we needed and what we could not do. Now, once we settle the issue that I can't clean myself up, I can't discipline myself and just kind of grit it out like I am going to follow God. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to overcome all temptations. <laughs> yeah, right. Let me know how that works for you. Instead, when we come to the place where we say, God, I desperately need you, I can't live 
the life you called me to live without you. My spirit is will is willing, but my flesh is weak. So once we've gotten there and we're able to come into God's presence now because we have confidence before him, not based on what we have done, but, but based on what he has done. Then we can start discussing some questions like, practically speaking, how do we encounter him? What does it mean to encounter God? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. So I would submit to you that we encounter God when we have direct contact between the Holy Spirit and our own human spirit. If God is a spirit, in order to interact with him, since God made us body, soul, and spirit, he is able to communicate with us by his spirit. The soul, comprised of the mind, the will, and the emotions, relates to the sp our spirit through something called intuition. We just have a sense. We perceive as a biblical word that Jesus, well, that was used in, in a number of places in Scripture. We, we perceive something from our spirit. We don't fully understand it. And we need to ask God for wisdom. But it's that interaction between God's spirit and ours where there's encounter. Here's another example of encounter, I think, in Psalm chapter 84, verse 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. See, when, when our heart has been purified by faith. Our heart can cry out for the living God. That's what we experience oftentimes in worship. Our heart crying out for the living God. But if we're going to have a very deep relationship with God, we're going to have to learn to hear his voice. You know, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Now that's something that I think many of us struggle with, to be honest. But it's true that our God's sheep, Jesus' sheep, hear his voice. Numerous times in the New Testament he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven times he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So how do we do that? Practically speaking, I think we need to quiet our hearts. In Psalm 62, verse 5, it says, My soul, wait 
silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. Wait silently for God alone. That is a very difficult thing to do. If you've tried to just sit and be quiet and focus on Jesus, focus on God, that's harder than digging ditches. It's an intense effort to get our soul, our mind especially, to calm down, be quiet, and just let God. You see, there, there's when the presence of God comes, sometimes we sense his presence more than we hear words. And again, we have a, a perception in the spirit of something that he's trying to communicate. And we may not even really understand it. But being in the presence of God will change us. There's a book that Andrew Murray wrote called Waiting on God. Excellent book. And it goes into this topic a lot more deeply than I'm going to have time to tonight. I'd like to suggest, though, that because we do hear his voice, Jesus said, we need to respond when we hear it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When God speaks, we need to respond with a yes. I will do that. I will say that. I will believe that. Whatever God is saying, we don't want to say no. Because when we harden our hearts, we enter into a downward spiral. And it leads to unbelief. It leads to destruction is what it leads to. Verse 12 of Hebrews 3 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, if God says something to me and I resist it, rather than saying, yes, I receive that, yes, I believe that, yes, I'm going to do that, I'm walking away from God. I'm departing from the living God. I'm allowing myself, as it says in the next verse, to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So this matter of sin in our lives is a very serious matter. It's not something that we can afford to trifle with. 
if God convicts us of something, we need to be obedient. While we're on the subject, I mentioned before that I've sensed condemnation a lot of times in my life. And one of the things that I had to learn is that there's a difference, a critical difference between the conviction of the Spirit of God and the condemnation of the enemy. Conviction points to a specific attitude, thought, action, and God says by the Spirit, no, that's not what I want for you. That's not me. That was wrong. But he doesn't push me away. Instead, he draws me to him and says, let me help you with that. Okay? He gives me hope that because He's pointed something out to me. He can bring change so that I don't continue to do that. Condemnation attacks me or you as a person. It's not only that was wrong, it's you're such a (laughs) fill in the dirty blank. You know, I mean, it just, he attacks you. He makes you feel like you're worthless, you're slime. He gives you guilt and shame and condemnation. So if you start sensing guilt, shame, condemnation, and a reluctance to be in God's presence, that is not God. That is not the Spirit. Because the Spirit is going to draw you to Himself, to the Father, and He's going to help us get out of the mess we've made. Okay. Just a couple more things quickly. You know, I I really love to read the word and I believe it's important that we do. I'll just share these statistics real quickly. 9% of Christians in America today read their Bible daily. 9%. Less than 3% have ever read the entire Bible, even once. So I think that's horrible <laughs> because if if we are so ignorant of scripture I was listening to one guy he said that when he goes to speak to kids he's got to tell them who Noah was and that kind of ignorance is appalling but on the other hand I think we miss what God intends. When we focus so much on the Bible that we ignore God himself.
John chapter 5, 39 and 40, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, Jesus did say that the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but he's speaking them. You see, eternal life is not found in a book. It's found in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So while there are truths in the Bible, and theologians spend their lives trying to develop their theology and their doctrine to understand what scriptures teach, that's all well and good. But I've been at this for 50, no, 60 years. I'm reading things now and saying, wait a minute, what does that mean? Things that I've read for decades, and I'm finally saying, I don't get it. I don't really understand. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Okay. So, understand this. God may use the Bible as we desire to spend time with him, but he will not allow it to take his place. In Psalm chapter 63, David, I think, models for us encounter with God. I'm sure with great passion, he cries out to God, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips.
For the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I would tell you that the reward for those who diligently seek him is that we know the love of God. David said, because your loving kindness, your love is better than life. Let me read it to you out of another translation. O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David knew the love of God. And because of that, he said, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. If you want your soul to be satisfied, it only comes from seeking God, finding Him, and experiencing His love. Jeremiah said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So again, it's the heart where we encounter the love of God. It's the heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. So Father, we ask you to reveal your truth Father, take these scattered thoughts that I've shared and bring your truth to us. Reveal yourself. We want to encounter you. We want to know you. We want to open our hearts, our minds, our lives to you. We want to seek you all of our days. And God, we thank you that we can find you and that when we do, there is joy, there is peace, there's all the fruit of the Spirit. God, we thank you that you give us life in you. Teach us, Lord, to have this kind of fellowship with you. Deliver us from anything that would hinder what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if after that you want to really apply what we've been talking about, let's worship a little bit. Let's seek God and see if he doesn't want to do something himself. Jesus, we just ask for your grace upon us. We want to exalt your name. 
We want to lift you up. We want to magnify you. Hallelujah. Lord, we do magnify you. We exalt your name. Your name is above all names. You're worthy of all of our praise. God, we just ask that you'd enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to encounter your presence tonight. In Jesus' name.